It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co-host, David Feldman. Hello, David. Good morning. Hope you're doing well today. And we have the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello, everybody. This is real practical, right down to your neighborhood, this program. Today, we're going to discuss what makes democracy work. Why is American democracy in crisis? And what can we do about it? Those questions are at the core of the new film, Join or Die. Our first guest today will be civic advocate and co-director of Join or Die, Pete Davis, who firmly believes that grassroots community building is at the heart of saving our larger democracy. We'll discuss the role of clubs in American life, the relationship between club membership and effective government, the declining role of membership organizations in civic life since the 1950s, and how we can reverse that trend. In the second half of the program, we'll welcome George Washington University Professor Scott Sklar. Professor Sklar is an expert on sustainable infrastructure, and he'll join us to talk about one of the easiest ways we can reduce our energy consumption and slow down the pace of our overheating planet white roofs. Well, not just white roofs. We have all sorts of passive cooling technologies at our disposal, and we look forward to hearing from Professor Sklar about all those options. Then to close the show, Ralph has some choice words about the media's coverage of the Republican presidential campaign and how we tend to ignore Labor Day. And on the topic of labor, Steve gives us the latest on the ongoing Writers Guild strike. As always, somewhere in the middle, we'll check in with our relentless corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber, but first, Pete Davis joins us to discuss the rise and fall and rise and fall and rise and fall of civic engagement in the U.S. David? Pete Davis is a writer and civic advocate. He is the author of Dedicated, The Case for Commitment in an Age of Infinite Browsing. He's the co-founder of the Democracy Policy Network, a policy organization focused on raising up ideas that deepen democracy, and co-director with Rebecca Davis of the film Join or Die. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Pete Davis. So glad to be here. Thank you. Well, this is a the documentary produced and directed by brother and sister, right? Rebecca's your yes, sister? It, yes, a five-year okay. project of a family film. And it's 99 minutes long, came out this year, and it's called Join or Die. Why the title? Well, the message of the film is it's about community in America. And, you know, very specifically, it's about the connection between joining up in local community and ordinary civic action and its connection to a thriving democracy. And so we wanted to use that old American phrase from Ben Franklin, Join or Die, to show the stakes of what happens when we lose the quality in this country of being a nation of joiners. You know, our country is going to be in big trouble if we don't learn how to be joiners again. Okay, so some of the examples you give of good joiner groups are the Odd Fellows number 80 out of Texas, an old Federated Society chapter bucking declining trends of people joining local organizations in the community. Then there's Red Bike in Green, Atlanta, Georgia, a black urban cycling collective, bicycles. And then there's Plainsong Farm and Ministry, Rockford, Michigan, an Episcopal church on a farm. And then there's Bowl Portland, Portland, Maine, a thriving modern bowling league. And then there's Cielo, 
CIELO Los Angeles, an indigenous mutual aid and advocacy group, and then there's Chicago Gig Alliance out of Chicago, rideshare drives coming together to fight for better working conditions. Now, we've discussed before, Pete, listeners should know, Pete went to Harvard Law School and shook the place up with a report called The Bicentennial Crisis of Harvard Law School, where most of the graduates are directed or incentivized to go into corporate law firms instead of public interest law. And we talked about the difference between charity and justice. Most of these groups are either social organizations, people getting together and doing whatever they do in the community, or their service organizations. They would mostly come under the rubric of charity. They're not challenging corporate power. They're not challenging the indentured strata of government, county, city, state, national, to corporate control. So you want to clarify the limits of this documentary so that we don't talk about the documentary I would have liked you to make, but the one you and your sister Rebecca made. Well, you know, ever since, you know, Alexis de Tocqueville wrote about this back in, you know, centuries ago, and what, you know, folks like Robert Putnam and Theta Scotchpole have written about more recently is that the basic muscles of joining start often not necessarily with explicitly political work. You know, one of the things we've seen, you know, there's been a decline by half in the amount of people that have attended any meeting. There's been a huge decline in the last decades of people who have taken leadership roles in any organization. There's been a huge decline in the amount of people that, the amount of people that say they have five friends and a huge increase in the amount of people that say they have zero friends. So these real basic atomic level skills that eventually flourish into hardcore political action often start with softer civic organizing. And, you know, as you saw in the turn of the century, the fact that there were Oddfellows Lodges and Masonic Lodges and Elks Clubs those would, you know, maybe be about meeting up with your friends and, you know, having dinner together, but they'd eventually be the place where you'd start talking about town problems together. The because they're people who know each other to begin people with. People who know each other and begin with. And, you know, the reason why we wanted to start with this, you know, ordinary civic life, not necessarily just the type of kind of hardcore political action that you're always speaking of, Ralph, is I think that especially people in my generation we are really have to start with the basics. You know, the amount of people who are 43% of Americans are part of zero organizations and another 20% are only part of one organization. So we're talking about 60, you know, about two thirds of the country that are not part of anything. So they don't know how to run a meeting. They don't know how to do an invitation. They don't know how to deal with tension inside of neighbors. They don't know how to plan something together in public. And I actually think that sometimes a bike collective or an immigrant mutual aid organization, or as you start getting more hardcore into a congregation that does political work or rideshare riders that are forming a proto-union among Lyft drivers, starting with these basics of just joining is the first layer that we need to get people getting used to. And then out of That's that, good, you start uh, come the action. You're fighting, of course, the internet gulag and the suction of people away from interpersonal community meetings into looking at screens at their iPhone and, and tablet. So 
with that as a background, because I think that's really a cause of the suction out of interpersonal community groups at the neighborhood level, give us the figures you have in your report under the title, Shocking Social Science Data, spotlighted in your documentary, Join or Die. You have six or seven declines, so give us the summaries. Yeah, you know, we've had at least a 40%, probably more declines since the 70s of people who've even attended one public meeting. We've had a 50% decline since the 70s of people who've taken any leadership role in any organization. When it comes to religious membership, which makes up, you know, organized religions not for everyone, but it used to make up 50% of community organizing, and it has a huge history in politics and justice work. We've recently crossed the line into less than 50% of people are members of a congregation, when that used to be up at 90% mid-century. 50% decline when they do time diary studies, where the Census Bureau literally asks people, keep track of what you're doing each hour throughout the week. We're spending 50% less time with our neighbors at meetings. 66% decline in union membership since the 60s. And then even on really soft stuff, like between the 70s and the 90s, there was a 60% decline in the amount of picnics Americans attended annually. So Everything from the goofiest way we get together and picnics and card games and meeting up at bars to really serious stuff like unions and congregations and political work. The muscles are atrophying. What do you attribute this to? How many well, factors? What? So there are a few interesting things. So one, you know, in the big study that we feature in this movie, which is the Bowling Alone study that Robert Putnam did in the 90s. You know, there are all these tiny things you could say contribute to it. So, you know, suburban sprawl contributes to it. There might be a little bit of women in the workplace where because there's two parent families, you know, working, two income families working, there's more time spent at work. The biggest one he found was television because he was doing his study before the Internet even took off. And, you know, he found all these interesting things on when television would first come to a town, you'd suddenly start seeing declines in civic life. And, you know, there's all this writing from the original critiques of television to Neil Postman in the 80s and 90s. And now we have extreme versions of television, you know, in our pockets, interactive, sucking up all of our time on screen times. That's a huge part of it. The biggest interesting find that Putnam found also was there's a real generational story here where there's something happening where the civic culture is not passing from generation to generation. So people who are in their 90s now are as civic as they were 50 years ago. People who are in their 70s are a little less civic than they were, you know, are a little less civic than them. People in their 50s, a little less civic than them. People are in their 30s, a little less civic than them. But the generations are not going down themselves in their civics. It's that with each successive generation, civic culture is declining. So there's something happening there. But those are what he found in his studies. You know, we can all have our own theories of what's contributing to this. You've written and spoken so articulately about this, Ralph. I think there, you know, we have Jane McAlevey, the great labor organizer in the movie, talking about, you know, there was a concerted effort in the 70s and 80s to promote individualism as the highest ideal. And it is of interest of people who were bothered by the labor movement and the women's movement and the civil rights movement and the consumer movement to tell you you're not all in this together, you shouldn't have solidarity, and to promote a culture of saying, you know, joining is not what you want to do, you want to be in it for yourself. So I think there's a cultural story too. 
Well, we've spent a lot of time on this program over the years, as Steve and David and Hannah know, on the massive corporate penetration of our citizenry, all the way down to undermining parental rights, selling direct hours at a day to kids as young as three and four, five, eight, undermining parental authority, drawing them away in entertainment, undermining worker rights, dealing with obstruction to justice, access to the courts, fine print contracts, can't negotiate anymore like you did with a local store, with big companies. The tax burden has shifted away from the rich and powerful, more money in campaigns, restricting civic leaders who come out of communities because they don't have money to run for office, more concentration of the media, much more use of pharmaceuticals as people that disrupts life even right down to dispensary and elementary school over medication, it's called. And, of course, the diminution of news, the dilution of news. You don't even read about or see civic and community activity anymore, shutting down of local newspapers and weeklies. So how how much of this can you attribute to corporate power? I think there's a huge part of that story. You know, one of the things we talk about in the film and a lot of people in the kind of community building space talk about is the importance of what are called third spaces. This is just one corner of it. So third spaces are if the first space is your home and the second space is your work, third space is a place out in the community that you can hang out in. In the mid-century, at the peak of kind of American civic life in the past century, a lot of third spaces were public common spaces. There were so many buildings in your average town that were owned by civic groups. There were, you know, huge, they call, you know, Eric Kleinenberg calls them palaces of the people, the beautiful libraries and plazas and community centers that we build. And now, you know, one of the great tragedies is when people talk about examples of third spaces now, they say Starbucks. So, you know, even that the idea that the people who would set our community spaces now are either, you know, Starbucks or McDonald's that are saying you should have your meeting here or corporate real estate agents that are, you know, buying up parts of corporate real estate developers that are buying up parts of town and owning the public space in the town. That's a huge part of it. That's just on one corner of community building, let alone all the union busting that corporations are doing, let alone the growth of the work week and the fact that, you know, people aren't given the space to do the community work, let alone, you know, media that, as you point out all the time, is raising you corporate instead of raising you civic. And so, you know, all of this is contributing to the decline of community. Well, in looking over the people you interview and who funded this, I was quite surprised. Maybe you couldn't have done it without the funding of the Lilly Endowment or the Alfred Sloan Foundation. That's the drug company money and and General Motors money years ago, as well as the Phyllis and Jerome Lyle Rappaport Foundation. But... You know, you interview Hillary Clinton, war criminal, full support of the destruction, criminal war in Iraq by Bush and Cheney, and toppling the Libyan regime against the opposition of Defense Secretary Gates. She persuaded Obama to do it. You interview Senator Mike Lee, a bizarre type of conservative senator. David Brooks, who has written a thousand columns without talking about corporate crime, fraud, abuse, domination. He talks in generalities and literary allusions and philosophical allusions. I don't see really any of the kind of civic advocates that you 
have been associated with, worked with over the years, recognized like Joel Rogers, for example, professor of law at University of Wisconsin, very close to the labor movement. You have to obviously make some compromises here. Could you explain? Well, we wanted to, you know, there were two parts of the movie that we wanted to focus on. One is we wanted to tell the story of this social science discovery, which was Robert Putnam's journey in, you know, he did this famous study in Italy called the Making Democracy Work study, which is the most rigorous study showing that ordinary civic action is what is connected to government flourishing. 20 years studying different regional governments in Italy, trying to find the causal link of what makes democracy work, his conclusion being ordinary civic action. Then going into his Bowling Alone study, which is about, you know, the most rigorous account of the decline of ordinary civic life in America on the fact of the, you know, the Washington civic groups versus kind of civic life out in the country. You know, he specifically addresses that, him and Theta Scotchpole, who wrote a great book, Diminished Democracy, on this, which is they were focusing not necessarily on what was going on in Washington or what was going on among kind of activist lawyers and advocates, but in towns and cities across the country, the amount of people that were part of participatory membership organizations. So we, one of the facts is we wanted to tell the story of his rise. And so that's going to figure into the politicians that have kind of interacted with him in his life. And then we also wanted to tell the story of the next generation of civic scholars. And that's why we were so excited to have, you know, Jane McAlevey, the amazing SEIU 1128 labor organizer who writes amazing books on kind of the practical tips of how to do labor organizing. Priya Parker, who wrote this great book called The Art of Gathering, which is kind of also about on the ground practical tips about bringing people together. And Eddie Glau Jr., who, you know, is a great lefty in national politics today, who spoke to, you know, a lot of the stories of corporations here, which is, you know, if you're working 60 hours a week, if your wages are going down over the years, how are you going to have time to have civic life? And so he talks about kind of the political economy of civic life in the film. So we had to have a balance of kind of people that were part of Bob's world and people that are kind of the new generation of civic organizers. It is puzzling that Putnam really does not focus enough on corporate domination. Like in our hometown in Connecticut, when we had a lot of small family-owned businesses, they were active. They went to town meetings. Now it's overwhelmingly chains. You know, they can be still family-run, but they're dominated by the chains, McDonald's, Burger Chef, and Dunkin' Donuts, and so on, with these fine print contracts tying them up, in effect saying, shut up, don't get involved in any controversial local issues. Why do you think he avoided it? I mean, we've had a corporate crime wave in this country. We've had all kinds of exposés in newspapers that Putnam reads, the Washington Post, New York Times, AP, Wall Street Journal, Boston Globe. Why do you think he... He didn't pay attention to that. He's supposed to be an empirical data gatherer. I do think there, you know, that is, you know, the political economy, what you could call the political economy of civic life. What is the relationship between the structure of our economy and how that affects ordinary neighborhood gathering, I think is a huge story. He touches on it a bit with labor unions. He touches on it a bit with working time. But I think I would agree that that is a part that he doesn't focus on, you know, and that's why I'm really excited by 
you know, people like Stacey Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance and, you know, the folks fighting the anti-monopoly fight today, what they point out, people, you know, for, you know this, Ralph, but for listeners who don't, you know, so much of the anti-monopoly fight used to be about the consumer welfare standard, where are we just getting cheaper prices out of these monopolies? And what is so great about people like Stacey Mitchell and Matt Stoller and others who have kind of fought, and as you have talked about for decades, is there is a total cultural aspect to this too. It's not just about cheap prices. It's not just about wages and labor even. It's also about what culture do we have as a country when a bunch of small businesses that are sponsoring the Little League, that are working on, that are creating, you know, a hundred different leaders in the town to be involved in something, people that actually know their own workers, people that actually know their own neighbors are replaced by a bunch of chains in a town. How does that affect not just the economy of the town, but the civic culture of the town? The total domination, Pete, of the culture by commercialism. Everything is for sale. There used to be commercial-free zones in this country where corporations didn't dare undermine parental authority and sell bad stuff, junk food, junk drink, sugar, fat, to kids directly, plus violent programming. There used to be commercial-free zones in other areas as well. I mean, they didn't predate on the public schools the way now they want to take it over, privatized public schools. They never dare challenge the post office. Now they want to corporatize the post office, these big corporations. And, you know, it's very important for Putnam to be spoken to very candidly because I think he's been overwhelmed with praise by all sectors, and he's pulling his punches on the empirical reality of what's going on to block democratic activity, neighborhood activity, community activity, political activity at the grassroots, the control of the two-party duopoly by big money, freezing out third parties, independent candidates, on and on. You know all of this. You've laid the groundwork now. You have a credibility with this documentary, Join or Die, and you can move it to the next stage because if Putnam wants to put out the fires of anti-democratic trends, he's got to look at the flamethrowers. He can't ignore the flamethrowers in the background. Please tell our listeners how they can see this documentary and the phone numbers and the contacts. In the spirit of the movie being all about community and getting together in person, we are currently on a community screening tour where before we hopefully next year go on, you know, a streaming channel where you can watch it alone, this year we want you watching this film together. So if you go to joinordie.film, there is a form on our website where you can bring the movie to your community. We have congregations and clubs and universities and public health centers and, you know, even political groups and, and unions have brought it to be a discussion point to jumpstart a conversation in your community about the importance of ordinary civic life and community engagement. So joinordie.film is the website. And there's a form right there you can easily fill out and we can work with you to bring it to your community. I'm fortunate we're running out of time, Pete. We're talking to Pete Davis, the co-director with his sister, Rebecca. The title is Join or Die. It comes from Benjamin Franklin. Subtext has it a film about why you should join a club, why the fate of America depends on it. Give the contact numbers once again slowly, how people can get this film or see this, including the trailer. If you want to see the trailer, go to trailer.joinerdie.film, three-minute 
summary of the film that pretty much shows you what, what you're going to see. And then if you want to sign up to bring it to your community, fill out our form at joinordie.film. And that's the website for this. Thank you very much, Pete. Thank you. We've been speaking with Pete Davis. We have a link to his work at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Up next, are we building roofs wrong? The short answer is yes. We'll be back for the long answer after we check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your Corporate Crime Reporter Morning Minute for Friday, August 25, 2023. I'm Russell Mokhyber. Trader Joe's is recalling a type of cracker because the crackers might contain metal, marking the second significant recall the grocer has made in recent weeks because of foreign objects in their food. That's going to report from CNN. The company said it was recalling its multi-grain crackers with sunflower and flax seeds due to possible metal contamination. No injuries have been reported to date, and all potentially affected product has been removed from sale and destroyed, the company said in a statement. Affected customers are told to discard the boxes or return them to Trader Joe's for a full refund. Trader Joe's recently issued a recall for two types of cookies because they might contain rocks. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mulcahy. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scroven, along with David Feldman, Hannah Feldman, and Ralph. Some of our solutions to the climate crisis demand worldwide systemic changes. Others are quite simple, like repainting our roofs. David? Scott Sklar is Energy Director of George Washington University's Environment and Energy Management Institute and Director of George Washington Solar Institute. Mr. Sklar is an expert on renewable energy, energy efficiency, and sustainable infrastructure. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Scott Sklar. Great to be here. Thanks for letting me on. Before we get into the subject of what white paint can do to reflect heat back into the stratosphere, Scott, and it's so good to talk with you. We've known each other for a long time. The news of the day is that Ocean City residents, not all of them, are vigorously opposing the proposed wind turbines in the ocean off Ocean City, and they've gone even further. They're contacting people all the way up the coast in New England to mobilize opposition to wind turbines everywhere. This is a real surprise. I can see where they might want some relocation. What's going on here? Is somebody behind them or is this lack of information? Well, it's both, Ralph. It's lack of information, but also, believe it or not, the hands of the oil industry are behind this. The first things that were happening were that whales were wound up dying off the New Jersey coast. And there was a big rush to blame offshore wind turbines. And I was interviewed by the media quite a bit on this. And I said, well, the first real problem is there were no offshore wind turbines. So they obviously weren't killed by them, nor were the approaches to map the ocean. They weren't using what the miners used to, you know, echo kinds of radar. So, and I said, and frankly, the whales don't bump into stationary things. 95% of all whales are killed by ships and 90% of all those ships are oil tankers. So that's what is the game here. I think the oil industry was sort of trying to slap at the wind guys to get the spotlight off themselves. The other issue, frankly, is the visuality. 
And again, if you look at off the shore at these offshore wind turbines, they would be the size of a sugar packet turned on its side. So you could see them. They won't be like huge. They wouldn't be larger, in fact, than most of the ships that you see on the water. It's been also magnified. And I guess what I say to everybody about this is zeroing out carbon and nuclear, frankly, is that you have to have a lot of renewables. And having renewables offshore are probably one of the best things you could do. So uh, lowest cost for sure and absolutely reliable and giving us the gigawatts we need before the planet climate collapses. So that's my response. Let's get to the white paint issue. This is very encouraging. Of course, people in North Africa have known this for years and other parts of the Middle East where they paint their building structures white. Casablanca means white home because they've known that it cools down what could be an insufferably hot area where they live every day. So in the news recently, a professor of mechanical engineering at Purdue University, his name is Professor Ruan, R-U-A-N. He was working with different kinds of paints, and he stumbled on a formulation where now he claims with some credibility that, for example, if you painted the roof of your home or apartment building with that kind of paint, it would increase the reflection of the sunlight back up to 98%. And if that's done all over the world, it would give quite a bit of time for the conversion away from fossils and nuclear to renewable and conservation of energy to take deeper hold over the planet's human energy needs. Can you explain this white paint? I first learned about it, Scott, from my friend Art Rosenfeld, who was Mr. Conservation. Sure. Yeah. People in California are benefiting every day from his energy conservation work when he was a state official. And then he was called to Washington, the Department of Energy, to do the same thing. And he made a big deal out of white paint. So can you inform our listeners about what's the status here and how quantitatively significant can it be? Okay. Well, if you want to say Arts had been an old and dear friend and colleague of mine, I want to start by framing the conversation that in the 2020s, we have lots of different approaches to reflect heat out of building. We have thermal barrier paint. We have reflective coatings, and white paint is part of that. We have low E coatings on windows. We have mechanical devices that pull heat out of buildings. So we have a huge set of options. And even if you just use the white paint, the high reflective white paint, or even the most ceramic reflective white paints that I use in the renewable projects, you can reflect about 30 to 40% of the sunlight out of the building which reduces your air conditioning bills by 20 or 30%. So they're cost effective, they make sense. What this professor did is say, can we maximize the reflection of the heat, the subset of rays that come from the sun that are just related to heat, which is exactly what low E coatings do in windows, but maximize it on roofs. And that's really what he has done successfully. Again, we have some 
issues on how we can scale that up and what materials it really works on and things like that. But the end point is the right point and the approach is the right approach that we need lots of low cost, simple ways to reduce our energy use quickly to affect these impacts of climate change that we're beginning to really get a hard dose of. Do you have any data on how many homes and apartment buildings and business buildings have white roofs? Well, actually, that's a good question. I think we have about 10,000 buildings out of basically a half a million buildings that have pure white roofs. And we have another 25,000 that have not pure white roofs, but light roofs that reflect some of the heat off. So we have a very small percentage. And even I live in a bedroom community of Washington, D.C., Arlington County. And when my neighbors are looking at roofs, I say, well, pick the lightest shingles you can get. You know, white is preferable, but even the lightest gray or lightest brown reflects out. And we need building codes to do this. We need community activists to do this. We need to train roofers and builders to do this. And we need to create sort of a social compact that this is very easy to do. And so with this and things like tree canopy, we can reduce the heat on the ground, which will save lives, make people healthier, and use less energy. And that's really the end goal. Isn't California leading the way in its code of new construction, requiring something like this? California, no question, is the lead. But I have to say, there are some great programs in Arizona, New Mexico, and Nevada. Again, all those states are dealing with, you know, record high heat and are experiencing it and having to set up cooling centers if the grid goes down so people don't die in their homes and businesses. So we are going, we need to focus this even more, obviously elsewhere, but even more in those four states as well. What's going on in Congress on this? Well, you know, Congress passed two bills, one in December 2021 called the Infrastructure Bill, and one in August 2022, the Inflation Reduction Act. And it does have incentives both for federal procurement. Remember, the U.S. government's the largest owner of buildings in the world and the largest user of energy in the world. By the way, that everybody who pays taxes pays for that energy bill. So it has a lot of options that the feds can do to step into this problem. And they are beginning to do that seriously. And then there is efficiency incentives, energy efficiency incentives, primarily in the Inflation Reduction Act. And building envelope issues can be addressed in it. But remember, it goes through the states and local governments. So what you asked originally, Ralph, is we need to get the local governments really focused on what they can do. In my local government area, you know, we have solar co-ops to buy solar. We're starting to see solar heat pumps, you know, cut air conditioning costs in half. Wouldn't it be great to have reflective roof co-ops so that Anybody who's thinking of renovating or building, you know, generally all you're doing is joint buying. So the purchase price is less. So you get your equipment at lower cost and higher quality. So 
we need to do things like that. And that's why this, this show is so important. Well, you practice what you preach. Your home is solarized. You have another building you work in. Describe it. It's also solarized. Are you saving yeah, money as well stores. as... Oh, yes. And, of course, we had a giant windstorm here a couple of weeks ago where winds were over 70 miles an hour, knocking out power lines and trees. And my two buildings were totally operational. I had people leaving their medicines in my refrigerator and charging their cell phones on my dining room table. But yes, I have two buildings where I give uh, weekly tours, mostly engineers and architects and professors and students, but also others. And my back office building is a small two-story office building with R50 insulation, with super insulating windows, with solar daylighting, bringing in natural light without the heat, full spectrum light, a solar battery system, where and wind also a small wind turbine and a small hydrogen fuel cell, and that runs that two-story building without any electricity. So it's a hundred percent. They call these zero energy buildings. Not that they use zero energy, but they take no energy from the electric grid. And that's my office building. My home on the same piece of property has R38 insulation has double pane argon filled windows with low E coatings. Remember the low E is what reflects the heat rays of the sun off the windows. Thermal barrier paint sprayed under the attic roof. It actually acts like a white roof in that it just reflects the heat waves back out. And of course, all LED lights and Energy Star, the most efficient appliances, and then a solar water heater, and then a geothermal direct exchange heat pump. And so I use 67% less electricity heating and cooling my house than any other technology. And then finally, photovoltaics, uh, multi-types of photovoltaic panels, so I can show people their options in a very large battery bank. And again, this building, I have so many batteries, I joke that the sun could be stolen tomorrow and my daughter could throw parties in my house every day for a month. I mean, it's a huge amount of storage. So I just bought an electric car last year. And I added some more solar panels. So the electric car is now 100% powered by solar energy. We're talking with Scott Sklar, longtime solar energy advocate and practitioner. People listening may be excited enough to want to know how to contact you. Can you give them a website? Yes, I have it under my company name, the Stella, S-T-E-L-L-A group, ltd.com. I also have a website through George Washington University, and that's www.gwueemi.edu, E-D-U. And I have an email. I'm happy people email me I'm so because I'm, I'm so old. I am at solarsklar at aol.com. That's solar and my last name, S-K-L-A-R, at aol.com. There you are. Now, the big question on the topic, Scott, is quantitative significance. And there's a stunning estimate made by Professor Jeremy Munday, a professor of electrical and computer engineering at the University of California, Davis, who researches clean technology. And he said this, hard to believe. He said, if materials such as the Purdue professor's ultra-white paint were to coat between 1% and 2% of the Earth's surface. That's 1% between 1% and 2% of the Earth's surface. 
slightly more than half the size of the Sahara Desert. The planet would no longer absorb more heat than it was emitting, and global temperatures would stop rising, end quote. Now, he admits there's side effects, wildlife, etc. But apart from that, can this be true? Well, let's just say it could be a ballpark, but I do want to point out two other facts. The American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy, ACEEE, which is the efficiency think tank founded by Art Rosenfeld, said that we could reduce 50% of all greenhouse gas emissions within 30 years using energy efficiency and at lower cost than any kind of electricity generation. So it's faster and lower cost than any time. You will save money reducing half our greenhouse emissions with energy efficiency, of which these reflective coatings are one of. And then the other one is Lawrence Berkeley Labs, the federal Department of Energy lab based in California, did a study that shows that energy efficiency costs equate to about 2.1 cents to 3.3 cents a kilowatt hour. And most people in the United States are paying 8 to 20 cents a kilowatt hour. You would be spending less money to save energy and making money immediately when it pays back, some of which is from a half a year to two years. So these make sense. Now, back to your question is, yes, we need to do a lot of different things. The problem is it's cross borders, just as we're seeing what you raised, Ralph, in New Jersey. We have people pushing back for lots of different kinds of reasons. So I'm, as one who is a professor and a practitioner and a businessman in the field, I am pushing for these collaborative efforts where you get groups of communities that agree to something and then just work it and rev it up. So that way you're teaching locally, you're acting locally, and you're building consensus. The obvious 800-pound gorilla in the room is the contradiction where corporations in energy arenas make more money selling waste, which is overuse of energy, and consumers save money by the efficient use of energy. So there's a dead-on conflict between the two interests, and guess who has the most power in the country over government and media? So what Scott is saying is the more you realize what you personally can save, quite apart from what your community and world can save, the more powerful you have to become on 535 members of Congress, at least, in addition to your state legislatures, and try to redress that terrible imbalance of power between the waste profiteers and the efficiency desires of consumers and families yeah, and homeowners. Ralph, and, you are 100% correct on this. And I, you know, I worked as a energy staffer during the oil embargoes of the 1970s. And, you know, the oil industry and coal industry and nuclear industry, utility industry lobbied brutally against renewable energy, energy efficiency, Clean Air Act requirements against their energy resources and later on climate change. And it's up to us to be the counterweight to that. And we need to do it. And the best way to do it is at the local level, because that changes minds. And those members of Congress respond when there's lots of community groups doing these kind of projects. 
Hannah? Just a counterpoint. Black goes with everything. So. <laughs> you know, I was thinking there. even after Labor Day? It's slimming, it's chic. Unless you're wearing me. Oh, so, Hannah, I'm I am fine and support black clothes. I have no problem. I just suggest that people don't wear it in the middle of the summer. Wear the whites and lights for reflection. But in wintertime, wearing black makes good sense. So I will support you <laughs> at least halfway in on this one. For the record, that was a joke <laughs> for the radio, for people who will inevitably take me literally. But actually, to that point, let's say, you know, if listening to it seems like such a simple idea, great paint everything white. If I'm so enthusiastic and I want to just run out and get white paint and paint my house, my, you know, my driveway, paint everything white. Is that always a good idea? If, if, if living at a certain latitude, is that a bad idea? Is there any do you have any kind of like caveats? Well, of course, you know, uh, first of all, not all coatings are safe. So, you know, painting your driveway white, I would think about that first on how it interacts with water and wildlife. But definitely, if you're rehabbing your house or building a house or summer home or working with your community on a new school or nursing home or multifamily homes, make sure that they put in there not only energy efficiency but white roofs and of course low coating windows and energy efficient windows i think that's a, that's a big thing you can do again if you're repainting your house i wouldn't do go out and just do it but if you're repainting your house think of that again the lightest colors reflect the most heat it doesn't have to be pure white but lighter is generally better and then in my community we're dealing with stormwater management so with the driveways, we're actually encouraging permeable pavements, which is basically holes in whatever you're using so water can get down and usually some rocks and sand underneath so it can filter down so it doesn't run in the street and pollute in our area, the Chesapeake Bay, the country's largest inland estuary. And we're doing lighter color pavements at the same time as permeable pavements. All of that makes sense, and all of it should be done together, and all of that needs to be done at the community level. I think that's the new power is local communities and people working together for a common cause. Well, we're out of time. Thank you very much, Scott, for your observations. And people who want to get more information about topics that we only touched on in these last few minutes can go to what informative website? Well, I would just Google George Washington University Solar Institute or George Washington University EEMI, which is the Environmental Energy Management Institute. And we have lots of information. And again, or you can email me at solarsclar at AOL.com. I have, since I'm a professor at four different kinds of courses, I have tons of information. Happy to share with you. I want to thank Ralph. I haven't spoken with you in about 40 years, but you're one of my heroes. And I want to thank everybody for being interested in this topic. It's critical. You're very welcome. And you're very enlightening. And if we get any contradictory emails, we'll send them to you for response. Absolutely. Happy to do that. Thank you very much, Scott Sklar, professor, solar energy advocate for decades, practicing what he preaches in his own home and adjacent buildings. Thank you very much, Scott.
Thank you all. We've been speaking with Scott Sklar. We'll link to his work at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Ralph, before we close, you have some political observations you want to share with us. Well, now we've seen the first Republican Party presidential debate, and it's important to ask why the mainstream media is so narrowly focused. Here's the way they cover presidential candidates, especially the two parties. When the announcement is made by a candidate, they give a summary of the pitch, the announcement speech. And then subsequently, they look at the polls and they look at the money. And if the money isn't coming in, the pollsters don't register very high polls. And if they can't get in the polls at visible levels, they don't raise much money. At the same time, the New York Times and Post have regular reports on all the candidates fundraising month by month. And it's done in a context of highlighting the role of money in politics. But they don't go to the next stage. I'll give you an example. Asa Hutchison, who was a former member of Congress, a moderate Republican, former governor for several years of the state of Arkansas. He worked in the Department of Homeland Security. He was number two in a deputy in the DEA agency in Washington. He was a U.S. attorney. He throws his hat in for the presidential Republican nomination, and he gets almost no press. He gets no press because he's not raising much money. On the other hand, someone who people never heard of, Vivek Ramaswamy, he made a lot of money in some biodrug industry initiatives, and he's spending a number of millions of dollars on his campaign. He's 38 years old, and he gets all kinds of coverage in the Washington Post and New York Times. He has some pretty outlandish positions. He praises Trump. And, and there you are. There's the contradiction, isn't it? They bewail the role of money in their editorials. They report the money all the time. And then they don't admit that their coverage is skewed by who raises more money than someone else. So someone as experienced as Asa Hutchison gets a fraction of the coverage that Ramaswamy has been getting. The second point I'd like to make relates to upcoming Labor Day. I've often wondered why the Democrats who claim they're for workers and labor unions don't make more of Labor Day. There are hardly any more Labor Day parades anymore. Talk about declining engagement. Used to be in all kinds of cities, vibrant Labor Day parades. Now there are very few left and the turnout is much less. But there are all kinds of things the Democratic Party can do to, to bring workers together, to have news conferences where workers voice their concerns, highlight the necessary to increase the minimum wage, labor law reform to facilitate forming unions against giant multinational corporations that are not unionized, and many other things, worker health and safety in the workplace, inadequate coverage by health insurance. They don't do any of that. They just go around their routine, shaking hands and telling the listeners who they are with a few slogans. So it's a real huge opportunity. It's one reason why the Democrats are losing elections to the Republicans. They've lost the contact with blue-collar, everyday workers. So I think it would be good if people were interested in one of the, the best labor autobiographies I've ever read by a unsung labor organizer and prolific writer hero whose name is Harry Kelber. 
He won the Callaway Award in his mid-90s. He lived to almost be 100, passed away a few years ago. He wrote an autobiography called My 70 Years in the Labor Movement. And he called out crooked or overly bureaucratic labor union leaders. He didn't play favorites. He was as honest as can be. And if you want to read about what the labor movement used to be like in its best moments and what it can be like, read this book, My 70 Years in the Labor Movement. You can actually get a few of the remaining copies by going to laboradvocate.org. And for $30, you can get the book, which includes postage. Well, speaking of labor, Ralph, I'm on strike still as a member of the Writers Guild of America. And I can give you a little update on what's going on there, if you'd like. I'd like it very much because I'm on strike, too. I belong (laughs) to the SAG-AFTRA labor union. I've been trying to help by assigning my modest royalties directly to the SAG-AFTRA foundation, which is trying to help workers who don't make much money in this industry pay their bills. And I'm having a great deal of difficulty in signing over these royalties to the foundation. That was my modest way of contributing since I'm not out there on the picket lines the way you are, Steve. Yeah. And there was a huge SAG rally at Disney that I attended yesterday. And there was a update last night. The companies put out a proposal that they had offered to the Writers Guild on August 11th, which is, as we're recording this, it's about a week and a half ago. And here's how the WJ responded. I just want to read this this short little missive that'll kind of encapsulate what's going on. It says, dear members, after 102 days of being on strike and of AMPTP, that is the organization that negotiates for the companies, after AMPTP silence, the companies began to bargain with us on August 11th, presenting us for the first time with a counteroffer. Now, in the past, they had not, there were three issues that they didn't even bother to counter, which was AI streaming residuals, transparency in streaming residuals. So we know how successful a show is. So we know what piece of the pie we deserve. And in the writer's case, this is a little bit different from the actor's demands, minimums in writer's rooms. So that being said, the WDA told us, we responded to their counter at the beginning of last week and engaged in further discussions throughout the week. On Monday of this week, we received an invitation to meet with Bob Iger, Donna Langley, Ted Sarandos, David Zasloff, and Carol Lombardini. They're all CEOs except for Carol Lombardini, who is the lead negotiator for the AMPTP. It was accompanied by a message that was it was past time to end this strike and that the companies were finally ready to bargain a deal. We accepted that invitation and in good faith met tonight in hopes that the companies were serious about getting the industry back to work. Instead, on the 113th day of the strike, and while SAG-AFTRA is walking the picket lines by our side, we were met with a lecture about how good their single and only counteroffer was. We explained all the ways in which their counters, limitations, and loopholes and omissions failed to sufficiently protect writers from the existential threats that caused us to strike in the first place. We told them that a strike is price, and that price is an answer to all, and not just some of the problems they have created in the business. But this wasn't a meeting to make a deal. This was a meeting to get us to cave. And that's which is why not 20 minutes after we left the meeting, the AMPTP released its summary of their proposals. This was the company's plan from the beginning, not to bargain, but to jam us. It was their only strategy to bet that we will turn on each other. 
Tomorrow, we will send a more detailed description of the state of the negotiations, and we will see you all out in the picket line so that the companies continue to see what labor power looks like. So that's the situation. And I would there. urge, I would also urge the range of impact by the unions to be broader, to focus on JP Morgan, BlackRock, Apple, big investors in the entertainment industry, and put the heat on them as well. Listeners should know this is not an ordinary strike for just higher wages and benefits. Many of these writers and actors are going to be exposed to losing their jobs entirely by artificial intelligence and other consolidations. So when Steve talks about the word existential, he is not exaggerating. I want to thank our guests again, Pete Davis and Scott Sklar. For those of you listening on the radio, that's our show. For you podcast listeners, stay tuned for some bonus material we call The Wrap-Up, featuring Francesco DeSantis. And in case you haven't heard, a transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour Substack site soon after the episode is posted. The producers of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour are Jimmy Lee Wirt and Matthew Marin. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our theme music, Stand Up, Rise Up, was written and performed by Kemp Harris. Our proofreader is Elizabeth Solomon. Our associate producer is Hannah Feldman. Our gopher emeritus is John Richard. Our social media manager is Stephen Went. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, everybody. Remember, try to become a Capitol Hill citizen. We'll talk more about it in future programs. But for now, you can learn about Capitol Hill citizenry by obtaining a copy of the latest edition of the Capitol Hill Citizen newspaper, 40 pages, go to CapitalCitizen.com and you'll get it back first class mail, print only. Hi, this is Jimmy Lee Wirt and welcome to the wrap up. First, we continue our conversation with Pete Davis. And you've already had participation in past festivals, Cleveland, Milwaukee, Boston, upcoming festivals in Bentonville, Arkansas, of all places. And you have a phone number. Do you want to give our listeners a phone number? Yes, 917-312-2568. By the way, before we go to Stephen and his colleagues, did you ever come across this amazing group called Front Porch? Is it the Front Porch Republic? It's a group that found that people were not sitting on their front porches. You know, a lot of houses in New England and elsewhere, they they were built with front porches, spacious, and or in cities, not just New England towns. And they noticed that they were always empty, even on nice days. People used to yes. sit in chairs and chat with people walking down the street or have neighbors over. So they started a group called Front Porch to highlight and publicize community gatherings that don't get much that. notice. So they, yeah, it's funny. Yeah. You know, Putnam has in mentions in Bowling Alone, kind of, he has a little section on the history of home design and that's relationship to community. And it's one of the most interesting parts because homes today are often sold based on their back patio and homes used to be sold based on their front porch. And both of them involve socializing. You know, when you dream of your back patio, you dream, oh, I'll have all my friends over to my back patio. But the difference between back patio friends and front porch friends is back patio friends are people you already know. Whereas if you sit on your front porch, you might meet some of your neighbors you don't know yet. And that's another thing that glues us together in civic life is kind of just the ordinary interactions of kind of being together on the street. And so that's a huge part of this. Compelling point. Steve? 
What do you say to people who say, you know, I go to a meeting, you know, for the community and there's always somebody there who's a little crazy and they're loud and they dominate the whole proceeding and just waste everybody's time? Well, actually, you know, what's funny of that we actually, that's why we were so happy to include Priya Parker in the movie. She wrote this book, The Art of Gathering, that I can't recommend enough, where she says running a meeting, and this is what any organizer would tell you, is, you know, labor organizer, community organizer, political organizer, and even just a social organizer. Running a meeting is a craft that you can get better and better at. And one of the key aspects of the craft, she literally has a section in her book, and she mentions this in her interview, is you need to take care of the people in your meeting. And sometimes taking care of the people in your meeting means making sure that someone doesn't dominate the meeting. We can't have these meetings be kind of endless talk fests. They have to be efficient. They have to push towards action. They have to be fun. And the best civic organizers out there run really good meetings that are kind of fun, engaging, and make you feel like I want to go and I'm going to get a lot done there. And we have to kind of hold ourselves to those standards when we're throwing Good. meetings. David? Well, I want to do a follow-up. Thank you on Steve's question. We teach leadership. How do we teach people how to be led? You know, I am kind of with, you know, John Dewey and, and others on this, which is that the best school is experienced out in the world. And one of the things we discovered while researching this movie is how much ordinary civic life is a school for how to be a citizen. You know, when you go, even in the non-political groups, even in going to an Odd Fellows Lodge or being part of a bike group or running a bowling league or being part of a prayer, prayer circle at, at a church, it is there where you learn how to resolve tensions, how to throw a meeting, how to do an invitation, how to, how to know that maybe you can't be the leader of this meeting and you got to follow someone else and be a good, not totally quiet yourself down, but maybe this time around you can't be the star of the show. All of that is a learned skill that you learn through doing. You know, that's part of why we wanted to make this film is that to really start building up those muscles again, we just have to start with the ordinary work of that. And Putnam has some studies on this that he talks about in Bowling Alone, which is that there's actually a connection between just being a pro-social person, like the amount of people that flick people off on the road, or the amount of people that don't get in fights when they're provoked, is connected to the amount of civic engagement that you have in a town. In towns with less civic engagement, more people are flicking them people off on the road, more people are, are getting into fights in bars. So actually, like, just even at the most basic level, how to be in society together is learned by being together. So if we're all going to be alone on screens, we're going to actually even lose these basic aspects of kind of being in civilization together. So we have to start being together again. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, the, the reality, Pete, is that there's massive underutilization of existing rights that people have all over the country on the statute books. And there's massive underutilization of existing community opportunities. All these groups are begging for people to fill more seats in their gathering venues and become more active, whether it's trying to save a lake or an estuary or a woodlands in the environment area. I mean, it's just all over the place. People who are active are begging for the majority of people who are not to come and and learn and contribute and propose and get excited about life, provide more meaning. Hannah? 
Pete, what role do you think that top heavy nonprofits have to play in the decrease in in smaller and participation in in smaller clubs? Yeah, this is what Theta Scotch, the best book on this is Theta Scotch Bull's Diminished Democracy. And the subtitle says it all from membership to management in American civic life. And she talks about in this book that, you know, at mid-century and even better, you know, at the during the progressive era, you know, civic life was dominated by these huge membership organizations. So there would be chapters, people would meet up in these chapters. There would be leaders in Washington or leaders at the state convention that were meeting with the presidents or meeting with the governor, but they would pyramid down to ordinary chapter life where, you know, where you could get a million people to do something. And it wouldn't be just mobilizing those people. It would be so ordinary. You wouldn't need to like do a big kind of get everyone riled up and get everyone angry to mobilize them one time for a big march in the streets. It would be so part of their ordinary life that, you know, and it was so of so many people's ordinary life that you could get a lot of people to vote in a way or move in a way or write letters to Congress in a way. And then you see over the course of the, you know, coming decades after that, you start seeing the decline of membership and the rise of kind of these management organizations. So you start seeing the Sierra Club or the ACLU start having less kind of people meeting up in weekly meetings and more sending checks to their main lobbyists in DC or at the state capitals. And they would spend more money just trying to get votes and donations out of their out of their so-called paper members instead of getting them engaged. And you can see the places where there's still membership and not just centralized management, they get a lot done. So you know, one of the reasons the religious right is so powerful in America today is they have people meeting up every week in congregations and feeling very connected to each other. The reason that, you know, labor unions, the ones that still exist in the states where they are still powerful can really throw their weight around. It's because they have members. It's not just because they have kind of a big war chest and, you know, centralized lobbyists. And so, my big encouragement to all kind of centrally managed orgs is do some of the work of building up kind of membership to not just kind of centralized management. Thank you very much, Pete. It's always good talking with you. Give one quick plug for your new book that came out recently, Addressed to Young People. On a similar theme, it's called Dedicated, the Case for Commitment in an Age of Infinite Browsing. And it's about how every, you know, the people that are getting the most done and feeling the deepest sense of purpose are the people that are long haul heroes, people that commit to things over the long haul. And so it's a message to young people to become long haul heroes themselves. Now, Ralph talks to Professor Sklar about the criticisms of solar and wind energy. I remember in the 1970s, the staff director of the Senate Energy Appropriations Committee warmly telling me with his hands on my shoulders, I appreciate your enthusiasm, Scott but there will never be fields and fields of solar panels or wind farms because it just can never compete against the trillion dollar traditional energy industries. And that was the view in the 70s back then that these new things were tinker toys. And of course, now most of them are providing the lowest cost, most reliable energy on this planet. Oh yeah, the nuclear power and coal, they can't begin to compete with wind power and solar energy anywhere in the world, or, as Amory Lovins has pointed out. 
or the water technologies. Absolutely not. They just can't do it. Another argument I heard against solar energy that may sound quaint today is they kept saying, you don't understand the sun, Ralph. Solar energy is not possible because the sun is too diffuse. I was so frustrated by that that my final rebuttal was at one time, I said, have you ever seen a six-year-old with a magnifying glass over an ant? Right. And that's the exact <laughs> right analogy. And we have these 24-hour yeah. concentrated solar plants in the desert, you know, providing 24-hour power, you know, with thousands of degrees of heat turning the generators. So, yeah, we have proved right. that wrong as well. Just one last comment. Why do you think some environmental groups are getting wobbly and including nuclear power as part of all the above? What's going on here? That's a great question. I'm glad you're asking it. There's a part of the scientific community that basically says renewables can't do it all. And I, by the way, emphatically disagree with that. If you include energy efficiency and you include the newest approaches to energy storage, which is things like pumped hydro, compressed air and liquids, flywheels, and of course, batteries. And many of that is now reaching cost parity with production electric generation in the grid from renewables, that there's no question you can meet the need. So part of it is, is believing this other story that somehow the renewables can't do it. The other issue is the industry is going, okay, the nuclear industry is saying, we're not going to build these giant plants. We're going to do these modular reactors. They're going to be smaller. And the problem with that issue is there's a lot of data coming out that, A, they actually produce more nuclear waste per megawatt than the big nuclear reactors. And secondly, they are all freshwater reliant. And in my classes at George Washington University, I mentioned that one of the defining issues, aside from climate change, is clean water. And most of our electricity on this planet is creating heat. That's what nuclear, coal, heavy oil, and natural gas have in common. They create heat and make water turn to steam and, and turn a steam generator. And now we have a whole range of technologies that do not do it that way. Some make heat, but can use heat engines like Stirling, Brayton Cycle, and Rankin Cycle engines, which is what a lot of the geothermal industry does. And of course, solar and wind don't produce heat. They just do, they are just turbines and hydropower, the same thing. So marine energy in the ocean. So we have a lot of non-freshwater technologies. And I do not believe in the United States today and, and in half the planet, there is enough fresh water. We use more fresh water for the extraction, conversion, and use of energy than we do to grow our food. And now that less fresh water is becoming less accessible and more expensive, we are going to need to focus more on food and rely on other technologies that use no or minimal water to produce energy. And the new so-called modular reactors, which I've been hearing about for 30 years, have never been proven, and they demand 100% taxpayer subsidies and guarantees, including one of Bill Gates's companies Absolutely. that he's invested in. Absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, and then we have to subsidize the waste, and again, and, and it's using fresh water, and it may be producing more waste. So there's a lot more viable, shorter term, less risky 
and economic choices we have. And my suggestion is focus on those because that's what will get us to the end game. Creates a lot more local jobs, retrofitting building structures for energy efficiency, more efficient use of heat, lighting, air conditioning, engines. That's been proven. And we've made great progress in those areas in the last 40 years, but there's a lot more efficiency. Yeah, now we've got to uh, right double down. that effort. Yep, Ralph, that's you're right. right. Now we've got to double that effort. Correct. Right. Steve, we're running out of time. Steve? Yes, I just want to quickly follow up on this line of questioning because we did last week a program about the false promise of small nuclear reactors. And inevitably, we get pro nuclear people commenting on the website. And I just wanted to uh, quote to you one of our one of the responses to that because it has to do with wind and solar. And apparently, this this listener this comes from a right leaning think tank in Canada called the Frontier Center. And here's what they said about solar and wind. And if you could respond, they say, "quote Construction of solar and wind farms has already caused massive devastation to Germany's wildlife habitats, farmlands, ancient forests, and historic villages." Even today, the northern part of Germany looks like a single enormous wind farm. Multiplying today's wind power capacity by a factor of 10 or 15 means a 200 meter high, 650 foot tall turbine must be installed every 1.5 kilometers or every mile across the entire country within cities, on land, on mountains and in water. How would you respond to that? Well, first of all, I hate this approach of everybody saying we have to go 100% wind or 100% solar or 100% solar wind. We have seven renewable energy options out there. And if you do that, you don't get these crazy things that might happen. There are several trends, though, that are very important. Uh, wind actually is better offshore, and it's offshore for several reasons. One, the wind blows longer on the sea than it does on the land. Secondly, most people on this planet do not live away from the coast. Most people are on the coast. Those are our big cities all over the world. And so you want less transmission to those people. And it's and being 18 to 50 miles off the coast is a lot better than a thousand mile runs of transmission wires from the Midwest to the coasts. So you're going to see the move is not going to be on land. It's going to be in the water. Solar is also moving a little on the water, but it's also moving in a whole new approach on farmland so that the panels are mounted higher so you can grow food, you can raise animals, or you can raise have pollinators for bees and butterflies. So it's not an either or. You're not in a farm community with miles of solar panels and no farming, you do both at the same time. That's called agrivoltaics. And that is the new giant pathway to get that. So again, rooftops can meet about 30% of US needs, parking lots about 15%, deserts 15%. So we can meet huge amounts of energy needs without even going into forests or farmland. And if we're going to go farmland, we can do agrivoltaics. But then I want to remind people, we have geothermal, which can meet 10 to 15%. In the middle of the earth is 9,000 degrees of temperature. And we already have two nuclear power plants, almost three now, with geothermal 24-hour power. 
but we can do more. In fact, MIT did a study that most of the geothermal in the United States is under the Appalachians on the East Coast. There's a much older mountain range. And then we have marine energy, tidal wave, ocean currents and ocean thermal, which is a multi-billion dollar industry now all over the world. Again, shipping power to the coastal cities, which use most of the energy. Refitting existing dams, not building new ones, so that they have either more modern turbines and fish-friendly turbines or smaller turbines can meet 10% to almost 15% of U.S. energy. And then the biogas, just carbon emissions from sewage, manure lots, water treatment plants could meet about 18% of U.S. energy. The Canadian Institute ignores conveniently passive solar architecture, which was developed by the ancient Greeks and ancient Persians over 2,000 years ago. And 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 all these people... And Ralph, also our Native Americans in the Southwest also use passive solar. Exactly. And also they ignore conservation of energy generally when they talk about these equations because conservation of energy means reduced sales of coal, oil, gas, and nuclear. And when you look at some of these institutes, you can understand why in terms of who their funders are. 100% correct. David? The oil companies are pushing direct air capture. I guess that's like filtering the air. Yeah, pulling carbon out. Carbon capture and storage or direct carbon capture are what's being pushed for. They've gotten some money out of these bills I mentioned and to try to do that. So far, I mean, it's technically possible in a lab. I don't see, you know, how that makes any economic sense, but, you know, they're playing around with it. What about painting the sky white? That's a little bit out of my area expertise. So have you heard that? that have you heard I, I have said, yeah, that they, and reflect tiny reflective nanoparticles. But, you know, that's the world of unintended consequences. How does that affect, you know, pollinators? Right. How does that affect human lungs? How does that affect our rainforest? So I'd much prefer, as Ralph said, start with maximum economic energy efficiency. That's the most rapid uh, focus on buildings, both uh, reflective coatings and energy efficiency and add renewables to them, and then and then the grid power side, maximize renewable energy and energy storage, but with the entire blend of renewable energy and energy storage. David, watch out for geoengineering enthusiasts. But let me ask you, did R. Rosenfeld also recommend painting black asphalt roads white? Yes. R. Rosen, Rosenfeld thought, and he, I am not in disagreement, that there is no reason why we have black, you know, black roads other than the tar we use, the macadam is black. And there's no reason we can't add pigments to make this reflective. We have a huge percentage of our land use in black material. (laughs) It's nuts. And now that we know what the problem is, you know, light pigments are a lot less expensive than almost anything else we're talking about. So I'm glad you're doing a show on that. You know, white roofs, white siding or light siding, uh, white roads, white parking lots, all make sense. Finally, Steve, David, Hannah, and Ralph continue to discuss the implications of the WGA SAG after a strike. Yeah, and, and it's why this strike is emblematic of what is going on in labor in general. 
And it's why there's so many, we're calling this a hot labor summer. Even at Disney yesterday, I was walking the picket line and across the street is Providence St. Joseph Hospital. And on their side of the street, there was a tent set up and hospital workers were protesting there about being understaffed. So this is a contagion that the companies don't know that they've brought on. And in relation to our conversation with Pete Davis, it really shows how being out on the picket lines, interacting with each other face-to-face, in person, has not what the companies thought it would do, which is wear us down and divide us. It's actually brought us together where we talk about things and we can have deep dive conversations about each other's lives. I'm meeting so many yeah. new people, old friends. It's, it's really galvanized us instead of worn us down. Also, the bosses are saying they can't afford this, they can't afford that, but the strikers are showing unbelievable wages, compensation, stock options these people are taking. I mean, one CEO made in one year over $200 million. You know, you break that down into a more realizable time frame, and that's like about $2,000 a minute on a 40-hour week, a minute. So it's good that you're really focusing on the huge greed at the top when they start saying we can't afford to pay someone who's making $24,000 a year, if they're lucky, a living wage. Yeah. As we've said before, a couple of their just one CEO salary could probably pay for the entire contract. We're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars over the course of three years when they're making hundreds of millions of dollars in annual compensation for doing what? What they're doing is really ruining the business. And what we're trying to do is save them from themselves, save the business for everybody. Well, keep at it. It's going to get tougher for some of the people who make very little money and are trying to pay their bills. And that's going to be the majority of the membership of the union. And they're going to be under great pressure. And the bosses know that. I hope the media broadens out the range here and says, you know, it's happening to to the writers and the actors. It's going to happen to a lot of other workers with this new technology and the relentless consolidation into shared monopolies by corporations. What would the labor movement, what would unions look like if we had Medicare for all? Only 12% of the members of SAG-AFTRA qualify for health care. When you walk the picket lines, all anybody talks about is qualifying for health care. What would the unions look like in America if there were Medicare for all? You know, most of France, because they've captured the the working class has captured their government. They don't need union representation. What would the union movement look like if healthcare were off the table? Well, it would definitely take away a piece of leverage that the companies have over us because we depend on that cooperation for our healthcare plans. So, you know, in a perverse way, they don't want to see Medicare for all, even though it would cost them less money in the short run, because that's a, that's a bargaining chip for them. Ralph? Yeah, obviously, what Steve said is right on. Whatever economic security the workers can get will increase their bargaining power. And that's why the unions are so much more powerful in France, as you pointed out, David. I have a question. As a layperson, not fortunate enough to be a member of, of either of the striking unions, are there any mutual aid organizations or is there any infrastructure set up for people to support 
the striking workers, Ralph mentioned donating royalties, but is there, are people just left to their savings and good grace of friends or is there? Is well, there no, not completely. There are strike funds that the union has set up and some very prominent members in both unions, prominent actors and writers have contributed millions of dollars to the strike fund to help people who are in desperate straits. My friend Tony is actually on that committee that just determines the, the distributions of that. But that's that's the, the aid that the union is providing. And that's a wrap. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour when we speak to newspaperman Steve McNamara, who volunteers as an advisor to the San Quentin News, a newspaper written by the incarcerated that reports on rehabilitative efforts to increase public safety and achieve social justice. Until next time. Stand up, stand up, you've been sitting way.